Hello, beautiful tribe. This podcast is sponsored by Uvita. Thousands of years ago, before modern medicine proved scientific evidence for mind and body connection, the sages of India developed Ayurveda, which continues to be one of the most sophisticated, powerful mind and body health systems up to date. And I can begin to tell you, tribe, that it's about putting the power back in your hands. And the company that's helping you do that is Uvita. I've been on Uvita for a couple months now so that I can have a healthy gut and be able to clear my gut and be able to have the best digestive system that I can have. Because healing your gut allows the body to build a stronger immune system and produce the right kind of bacteria that tells your brain that it's okay to feel good. And as, as everyone knows, I'm the shaman who likes to stay lit and make sure the tribe is lit all day long. And so it's important for us to feel good in our bodies and it's important for us to live a very healthy life. Uvita is a company that is doing that. They are utilizing the knowledge and understanding of Ayurveda in their company, wild harvested and organically grown herbs that they synergistically create in an Ayurvedic way to be able to give you what you need for your body to sustain health, wellness, and vitality. Everything that they have in their company is based in integrity, ethically sourced from natives who practice sustainability. And I can't begin to tell you how happy I am to share this with you and to have them be one of the sponsors for Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. Their products offer everything from immunity to healthy joints and to healthy mood and healthy digestion and a healthy body. What more can you ask for from a company that is bringing Ayurvedic understanding to the Western world in a way that is supporting us and lifting us and shifting us into the greater possibilities of who we are? So I welcome you to experience Uvita. You can even contact them by going to their website, which is www.uvita.com. And you make your first order, type in the word shaman, which is their code for the Ancient Wisdom Today podcast tribe. And you will get 35% off on your order for your first order of Uvita. But I'm telling you, the moment you start taking this product, you're going to see dramatic change in your body and the way you feel. And that is the best. And as the tribe knows, I'm all about putting the power back in your hands. So go ahead and check out Uvita and use my code SHAMAN. And until then, live healthy always and every day in your life. Love you. Human beings have been sharing stories for hundreds of thousands of years. And with those stories came the emotional, spiritual, and physical knowledge of the ancients. Shaman Durek is a third-generation shaman, an evolutionary innovator, and a women's empowerment leader. He's here to bring forth the ancient wisdom of our elders to help heal and bring happiness into our modern society. We're sharing ancient knowledge in modern times in order to put the power back in people's hands. Welcome to the tribe. Hello, tribe. Welcome to Ancient Wisdom Today. And we are so happy to have you here. And let me just tell you, if anyone hasn't told you, let me be the first. I love you. I light you. I ignite you. I lift you and I shift you. And I acknowledge you. And I know how powerful you are and how intelligent you are and how creative you are and how you have all of these beautiful gifts inside of you. And I love how you bring them out to the world. And I love how you're always seeing the greatest possibility in yourself and other people. I'm so happy you're here on today's show. And let me tell you, we have an amazing, amazing, amazing show for you today. A beautiful, beautiful, 
old friend of mine, a brother who is so powerful and so amazing, so wise and has so much knowledge to share with everyone to really help this part of our world, the people in the world who are dealing with stress and anxiety and really helping them bring back to themselves the clarity and understanding that they need through meditation. And when I say that, I know a lot of you on here are very mainstream and you're like, meditation, what? And I know you don't meditate, but this is the reason why it's so important to have him on our show today, because it's not about just doing the woo-woo or the fluffy bunny thing that a lot of times I hear people say like, oh, I don't want to meditate. That's for those people. But it's not. It's for everyone. And it's about changing our world and lifting our social climate to a level where we're recognizing inner peace and inner well-being. And that can only happen when we learn how to meditate and bring ourselves to this place within us where we recognize that we are all connected in this beautiful journey of love. So I want to introduce you to my brother. And also his name is Light. So you can imagine and see inside of yourself what kind of name is Light. It's so powerful. His name actually speaks the tone vibration of what it is we're bringing on planet Earth. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Light Watkins. Hello, Light. Hey, brother. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be speaking with you and your tribe. Yes. Well, you know, um, our tribe is also your tribe. All right. <laughs> to our tribe. Thanks for bringing me on to the tribe. Exactly. So you have a new book that just came out. Tell me about this book. Tell the tribe about this book. And yeah. what, what made you write this book and, and what you do in life? The book is called Bliss More. How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. And I wrote this book because, as you said in your introduction, I think everybody agrees that meditation would be a good thing if they did it, but we're so quick to disqualify ourselves from being able to meditate for all manner of reasons. My mind is too busy. I can't sit still long enough. It doesn't work. You know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm just staring by, and at the back of my eyelids. And I had those same experiences as a do-it-yourself meditator. I'd never really had any formal instruction. And I was fortunate enough when I moved to Los Angeles, when you and I met, I think we met in Whole Foods or something like that, because we would always be at that Whole Foods on Santa Monica and Fairfax. Mm -hmm. And that was around the time that I was, I was, I'd met a meditation teacher who gave me formal instruction and really helped me understand the mechanics of meditation, the principles of the mind, and how to operate in concert with the thinking mind in a way that allowed the meditation experience to feel completely different than what I originally experienced, which was basically hitting my head against the wall. So I started to enjoy meditation more and more, and then I got it. I realized that there is an aspect of bliss, there is an aspect of inner happiness that one can experience through meditation, but it's counterintuitive because I think when we approach meditation in the way that we approach other things, working hard, trying to you know, control the experience, it ends up keeping away all the things that we want to have happen in the meditation. And what I learned was when you take the, the path of least resistance and when you do less, you accomplish more. And I started enjoying meditation. I started doing it on a regular basis. And then I got that meditation is a thing that you need to do every day in order to really get the benefits from it. And 
in order to do it every day, on some level, it needs to be something you look forward to doing. It may not start off like that at the very beginning, but it, if you do it regularly enough and you recondition your mind and your body to the approach of less is more and the path of least resistance, you'll start to find a flow and a rhythm in your experiences that will allow you to really feel a tangible sense of oneness, as you were saying. And, and there's nothing like that tangible sense of oneness. It's, it's literally addictive, right? There's the intellectual concept of oneness, which is what we can read about in a Wayne Dyer or Eckhart Tolle book. But to have this sensual experience of being in a place within yourself where you're no longer wishing that something else was happening other than what you're currently experiencing. I mean, that's, that's the truest, truest sense of oneness. And that's the, that's the state of Satori. Right. And when you're there, it's just, it, it, it's, it's completely neutral, right? And when you come out of it, you have that, you have, that's where you have the bliss. You feel what it was like to be in that oneness. But when you're in the oneness, you don't know you're in the oneness because there's no two-ness. There's no you observing yourself in the oneness. So it's it, it, all these little things were like really fascinating to me because they were very different from what I had read about and thought about without having any kind of instruction. So I wanted to, to give other people who aren't as fortunate as I have been to be exposed to these kinds of teachers and, and people who, who knew these things. I wanted to give people access to this. I want to give the guy who's driving a bus in Kansas City access to this same information. I want to give the girl who's in the rice fields of Bali this access to the same information because it's not it's, it's, there's no point in just the privileged or the elite or the people with access having this knowledge. And the world so desperately needs more people who are meditating just because, you know, if you have more people meditating, you have more people who are happy, less people who are suffering, and the world is a better place. And so that's the mission behind writing the book is just to spread this information far as far and as wide as possible and to really just demystify the practice of meditation, simplify it, make it make it just a normal thing because that's exactly what it should be. We really should be taught this stuff, you know, in kindergarten. I, I agree hundred percent. And uh, and so it's it's become this whole thing, the pedestals and I want to take take the white gloves off, take the pedestal down, knock that shit down like we knocked the Berlin Wall down and just make it normal. Like like taking a shower. Why do you think um, meditation hasn't been normal in mainstream society? What do you think has been some of the, um, the how do we say, the, the obstacles that have been standing in the way? I think there's been a microwavization of happiness where we, you know, with, indust- with the industrial age, there's a, a notion that there's an assembly line approach to happiness. As long as you have this and this and this, all these things should come together and then boom, you should be happy. And that what that did was it took us away from our family unit. It took us away from nature. It took us away from so many things that are not in alignment with nature, with our nature. And, and as a result, we started to suffer and, you know, all these different mental health disorders and things started to spread a lot wider and then pills and medication and drugs. I mean, I, I, I read something on, uh, about how cocaine used to be used to heal headaches or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know? And so was MDMA used to help people with depression right. in clinical trials. So all these things were happening. And, and I think it's just 
pretty much the wild, wild west in terms of, you know, uh, medication and pharmaceuticals. Now we're starting to see that, you know, none of these things are cures to anything, but the mentality is still very much potent. The mentality of, oh, I can just take a pill. I don't really want to do any work. I don't really want to associate with those people who are doing those things, you know, walking around with ashes all over their body with dreadlocks and no clothes on. That's not who I am. So I think there's a characterization of what it, mm. what a meditation person looks like and lives like. And it's just, you, it got accentuated. I don't know if you saw the Wild Wild Country oh, yeah. documentary. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And um, I don't know if we can talk about that for a second, but yes, I just, can. I Absolutely. felt like that, that for me, it re, it reconfirmed that, you know, this whole, that's just, just the, the dichotomy of the society that we live in and the Eastern ways that have been sort of stereotyped and, and caricaturized to look ridiculous, you know? And I don't think that documentary, I, I thought it was good if you have a proper context of what that was all about, you know, it's like, oh, that's interesting. But for someone who's in middle America, who doesn't really have a lot of exposure to those things, I think I thought it didn't really do it any any justice. I'm going to make a comment on that. So I have a lot of clients who are Sanasians and I also have a lot of clients who actually work side by side with Osho. And one of the things that they said was that Osho was never around, that Osho was a very recluse, kept to himself, and that he wasn't there all the time with the people. So I think that the container, I mean, the way that they were showing it, yes, there's a beautiful energy and symbiosis that is being shown in the way that the people who were living in the country and living with Osho and how they were living. However, what I think what made it difficult for the people who are not in that community was there was no structure. And I think that a lot of, and I know for myself, because whenever I talk to like Wall Street execs and I tell them, oh, you know, you should look into meditation. And I tell them this, you know, as a, as like a prescription shamanically, like, I think it would be good for you to meditate more. They were like, why? Why should I meditate? Like, that's, that's like, what am I, like, I'm, I'm here to make money. I'm here to do business. I'm here to do that. Then when I tell them, well, if you meditate, it's going to open up your perception and give you more insight and more ability. So in that time, it was like, Osho is a great person, but he wasn't, he wasn't hurting his flock. He wasn't taking responsibility for making sure that his flock was taken care of. And I think that when you see when you when you see the imbalance between both the the world, the Western world and the Eastern world, the Western world is is based on an idea of structure and understanding. So everyone is really scared until they understand something. But if something is forced on them and they don't understand something, then they just kind of judge it and push it away. And that's kind of like how I've learned even just with myself as a shaman going out and working with the mainstream public that I, everything was to me was about education, 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 education. And if they had educated the people next in the town next to them, like, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is what we're about. I don't think it would have ended that way. But I think there's a social responsibility. Yeah, and I think that's that's the answer to the question. You know, why do people not meditate? It's because they just don't understand it well enough. They don't understand the real world benefits and the kitchen, how, how meditation can help them solve some of their kitchen table issues around money, around love, around, around their relationship with themselves. And, and that's one of the, 
that was that was one of the uh, objectives with my book was to bring the meditation down from the ethers onto the kitchen table. And let's really look at this thing and see, and let's look at your life and let's see where we can find some common ground. What do you think about um, the culture of those who are like really and dating themselves with marijuana and smoking and getting really high as a form of like, because if we look at it, like from the understanding that we came to earth, we were put, we were thrust into a system that made us use the part of our brain that was about problem solving and figuring things out and calculations and deductions. We weren't thrown into a situation where we were learning emotional intelligence. So the coping mechanism of human beings on earth is not really there. So people cope through alcohol, through drugs, through marijuana, through any form of outside benefit that would actually give them some kind of like, you know, euphoria or some kind of um, feeling where they can like decompress themselves through whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the culture on planet Earth is that we don't have emotional intelligence um, adapted at the way where we would don't react to like you know, bombs to war, to things we read um, in the newspaper, to things we see on television, to all of these different things. And so what happens are these trigger points are happening in people where they're not able to have a coping mechanism. Do you feel that meditation should be the new coping mechanism? I think meditation is the most effective uh, release for the pressure that gets built up on a day-to-day basis from just stress accumulation. And and you're right, you need, everyone has some sort of release. You need an outlet for the pressure. But what I've seen with meditation is that it's it provides you with the cleanest outlet, meaning you're not gonna be dependent on any other exogenous chemicals. You won't have to get, you won't be dependent on anything external, right? And if you don't have that, then that, makes you dependent on the weed or the pornography or the alcohol or, you know, trying to sleep your way, have as much sex as possible because that's your way of your outlet for the stress release or you become addicted to exercise and that. And and so what I consider meditation to be is a key sort of key habit, which allows you to kind of have a, a more balanced relationship with everything else. I'm not a believer in abstaining from anything in moderation, right? I think that we can all make responsible choices based on the time and the place, which which means that sometimes we shouldn't indulge in certain things just because that's not where we are. Like for instance, my personal pledge to myself is don't use straws, right? It's a little thing, mm-hmm. just don't use straws. Yeah. But some people may think I can't consume a beverage without a straw, right? which is whatever it is, but their whole other thing may be, well, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, and I'm not going to consume meat. So um, if you, you have to find, you have to have a certain level of internal balance in order to make those kinds of choices. Otherwise you have no control over anything because you're basically trying to satisfy the endless cravings of your body because your body is basically running the show. And it's not even really the physical body as much as it is the stress inside of the body that's calling all the shots. The stress determines how well you sleep at night. The stress determines how much you digest your food. The stress decides if you can get it up at night or not. The stress decides how committed you can be to any one thing or how focused you can be to any one thing. And if you're not sleeping, if you're not committed, if you're not focused, if you're not digesting, you're basically operating in just get by mode, which I think we've normalized as a society. No, completely. We've normalized just getting by 
And so therefore, things like going to the vacation or going to watch the opening of the next Star Wars, those are the biggest things that people experience in their life. And, you know, when they when that's all they know, then, yeah, they think I have a great life because I get to take a vacation. I get to go watch Star Wars. I get to go to the fancy steak dinner, blah, blah, blah. But we have no idea how much more mental and physical possibility, capability, potential that we all can experience. And there could be endless layers of subtlety that could be detected that could make every single moment as exciting as going on that vacation, standing in the DMV, going to the post office, being in traffic, having a conversation at a dinner party with someone who you have nothing in common with. Like those moments can provide all kinds of mystic, amazing, beautiful connections, interactions, perceptions. And that's what people who meditate on a daily basis experience. It's not that they're some, you know, different type of person from yourself. It's just that they have more, they're, they're, they're shining more light, right? And, and one of the analogies I like to use is, you know, we all have a watt of the same wattage inside. It's just that with stress, stress is like dust falling on the light bulb and it covers the light that's shining brightly, but mm-hmm. you're only getting 2% of the potential. That's a good analogy. So in a 2%, if your light is only shining, if if all you can experience is 2% of your light, then there's going to be lots of shadows. Everything is scary, dangerous. The world is suffering. There's all these people that are trying to get me. But if you, <laughs> if you, <laughs> the shadows and every everything is trying to get you, yes. right? Boogeyman is real. Yes. And then- when you meditate, it's like every, it's like take a little cotton swab, just cleaning off some of that dust that's caked onto the light, and then more and more light is coming through, more and more is coming through. And then when you're operating at 90% of your cap- capability, there's no shadow. So you can see everything, which means you can see this connection. This is, this is connected to that. And I keep knocking my knee against this thing here. It keeps hurting me. I'm not going to do that anymore because I can see it clearly. Right. Or if I want to have that experience, I'll consciously choose to do it because I already know how it's going to turn out. And maybe it could be entertaining for five minutes, but it's not an accident. I'm not a victim. So all of these things that we talk to our therapists about usually are result of either being children and not being able to see the connections or being adults and still living in the darkness. And so the meditation turns that light on. I'm sorry, cleans the light bulb, allows the light to shine uh, a lot brighter. And that gives us back our true nature, gives us back our perceptual acuity that we're, we were born into. That was our factory setting. And that's what makes things interesting. It's not that life changes around. All those objects are the same. It's just that it's more light shining on them. That is beautifully said and very poignant for everyone to hear. I think that's very important. Uh, let's talk about um, families and children, uh, because a lot of a lot of listeners have a lot of kids and family. What do you think is the proper age to engage your child? And do you think children should um, be introduced into meditation at a very young age? What do you what What is your thoughts on that? I think uh, uh, the honest is on the parents to demonstrate a life of meditation. Like if your parents aren't meditating, it's going to be a hundred times harder to get the child interested in meditation. That's a very good point, by the way. So the parents have to do the, the hard work of showing the child, normalizing the practice, just like we normalize watching television for hours and hours a day. And kids don't think anything of it. Just like we normalize staring at our phones, kids don't think anything of it, right? 
If the parents didn't do it, the kids wouldn't be more inclined to do it. And, um, and for the kids that I teach, I teach kids, I've taught kids as young as four or five years old. I've got a, I've got a very comprehensive training that I, that I do. It's four days, 90 minutes a day. And it really just depends on the maturity level of the child. I've taught kids as young as eight years old in that way. Otherwise there's a, a child's sort of training, which is a couple of days, maybe a couple of hours, that kind of thing. And they can work up from sitting for five minutes to sitting to 15 or 20 minutes over, over a few years. Uh, but the thing that is most effective is when the parents are meditating and the kid comes to the parents and says, what are you doing? And, and, you know, I want to, I want to do that with you. And that's, that's the prerequisite for me teaching a child. I'll say that the child asks you about meditation, or is this something where you want them to meditate because you think it'd be good for them, but they don't really want to be here. I don't want to teach those kinds of, in those situations. I want to teach the people who want to be there, but when they want to be there, man, it's like amazing. The kids get it twice as fast as the adults. They just drop right in. And it's amazing because they don't have all those preconceived ideas of, you know, why they can't meditate. So what you're saying basically is that parents shouldn't force their kids into meditation just because it's the trendy thing to do right. as according to look at my kid who meditates and like our family is like eating, you know, raw and, you know, doing all these things. But the, you're, and this is a very, um, really important um, topic because a lot of times parents will do things that are completely diff different from what they want their children to do and then wonder why their children are having resistance. And um, so what you're basically saying to everyone is that if you want your children to meditate, if you want your children to be in that space and learn how to step into that, to that sacred space, they need to be walking the talk. Yeah. And it's, you know, there are obviously exceptions, right? Um, if parents have no interest in meditating, but the child shows interest in learning and meditation, then absolutely get that child some instruction, get him the book or whatever. But if you want them to meditate and they don't want to meditate and you're not meditating, then it's going to be an uphill battle. Like anything else with mm -hmm. children, mm -hmm. you want them to eat more vegetables, but all you eat is McDonald's and Kentucky fried chicken. It's going to be an uphill bat battle. That's all they've ever eaten. So meditation is like brain food and they need to they're going to eat what you eat, basically. So you start eating your vegetables and eventually they'll start eating vegetables. Yeah, I see that a lot. I see a lot of contradictions. I work with a lot of families and I see a lot of children that I work with who come to me and say, you know, Shaman Dirk, my parents hold all this dark energy or, you know, they're very stressed out all the time and I can feel all of their emotions. I can feel how they're feeling and it causes a lot of anxiety for children. So I think, I, I do, I highly do believe, um, I, I highly believe that, uh, meditation for children is is definitely necessary, and I think baby, you know, having some kind of um, practice. Um, what do you and what do you? What would you say to someone who does who's never meditated before or wants to get their family into it? Their kids want to get into it, but they don't know what to do. They don't know where to begin. What right. is your advice for them? So that that's really the reason why I wrote my book is to become a Rosetta Stone for anyone who has any interest in meditation because. You know, there are a lot of people, and you experience this too in your work, there are a lot of people who are waking up and say, oh, I'm a shaman today. You know, I read some book yeah, about shamanism. <laughs> Don't get uh, me started. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a shaman. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. People are waking up every day saying, I'm a meditation teacher now. The yoga, no one's coming to my yoga classes. Meditation's a hot thing. Let me start calling myself a meditation teacher. I mean, technically I have been telling people to close their eyes at the end of every yoga class. So I'm a meditation teacher. Right, yeah. And... um. So, you know, in order to be able to vet 
these people in the marketplace. And it's just a function of, you know, living in a capitalist society and people can do whatever they want to do. And that's great. I think that should be celebrated, actually. But the onus is on us to be able to determine whether or not what this person is offering is something that we can benefit from. And it's creating a lot of confusion in the marketplace. But there's some pretty simple ways that anyone can determine where which path is the right path for them. Two things. Number one, when you go to a person or a place, or even, even if you're holding a book, how do you feel? How does it make you feel when you read what the person's wrote, written, when you see what they, you watch a couple of their videos or what have you, if you go to one of their lectures or introductory sessions, you know, do you feel a deep sense of resonance with that person energetically? It doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with what they're saying, but there's a, an underlying feeling of connection. And if something inside of you is saying, is nagging at you and gnawing at you saying, you know what, run in the other direction, even if it's me, even if you're in front of Light Watkins, I'm talking and you're having that repelling feeling, run in the other direction. You have my permission, run in the other direction, because that's nature's way of telling us what's relevant, who's relevant for us. Now, um, a lot of that could be coming from old stress and triggers and all that and blah, blah, blah. But that's where we are, right? So let's just deal with where we are right now. The other thing is, if there's a resonance and you look around the room and you look at all the other people who are also resonating and connecting and people who have been enjoying that particular approach to the meditation, is there a connection to those people? Do In other words, do they seem familiar? Do they kind of look like you or dress like you? Do they share the same priorities as you? Because if you're in a room with a bunch of people wearing robes and those are the people that are smiling and the people who are dressed casually are looking confused, (laughs) (laughs) then you see where that practice is going to take you. And unless you're not, unless you're prepared to become a monk, you know, then I would say, don't, don't start getting involved in all of that. But right. if you want to be a monk, then that's great. Then go for that. So, you know, there's, it's not complicated. Every, there's always feedback around every situation. And that's just, those are two very simple ways to kind of cut through a lot of the, the noise and just kind of see as a starting point where this thing can take me. But also whatever you decide to do, commit to doing it for a good amount of time. Don't give it just two days or a week or do the same thing we do with, you know, a, a Netflix show. I'm not, I didn't get into it you know, after two episodes. So, you know, you have yeah, to I know really, those, I know those types, you have to really give it, give it. What would proper, you say is the proper um, length of time to actually soak in? I would say, I would say, give it a good month, a good 30 days, minimum, minimum, if not 90 days, a good three months, but it has to be, you have to be consistent with anything. You know, if you only exercise once a week for three months, you're going to think exercising doesn't work. But if you do it every day, maybe with a couple of rest days off every you know week, then you're going to see some changes. Now, there's going to be some soreness in the beginning. And like that with meditation, you're breaking the habit. And this is another thing people don't appreciate. You're breaking the habit of not meditating for 30 days. Guess what? You're addicted to not meditating for 30 years or 20 years or however old you are, right? So... When that starts to get broken down, it's going to cause your mind to go haywire. It's going to cause you to get extra fidgety. You're going to, again, think, oh, I'm not cut out for meditation. But it's just the, it's the meditation equivalent of sore muscles. If you do 10 push-ups, you've never done a push-up in your life, 
your triceps are going to be sore the next day, right? Your stomach may be a little bit sore. You try to laugh and you're like, oh God, don't make me laugh. It's too, too, it hurts. So that's because you're waking up those parts of your body, those muscles that haven't really been getting the stimulation that, that they're designed to get in order to keep you strong and balanced. And the same thing happens with the mind and meditation. As your mind starts to feel really busy, you may have some releases where you feel emotional. It doesn't mean that meditation isn't working. It doesn't mean that the devil is trying to in, in, you know, invade your body. And all <laughs> the that. devil is trying to invade your body. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you read all this stuff online. And it's just, again, people who are operating with you know, 10% light, lots of shadow, lots of darkness, not able to see connection. And they think the boogeyman has come to get them in the meditation. And it's not, that's not what's happening. It's your body is working on your behalf. Your body's always working on your behalf to keep you balanced, to keep you safe. And if you have been telling your body for the last 20 years that you're always under attack, you live in the doggy dog world, everyone's out to get you, your body is now trying to protect you by keeping you in fight or flight mode permanently, which is very toxic as everyone now starting to understand. It's very toxic for the nervous system. And when meditation comes into the picture and tries to balance you and get all that stuff out, those toxins, you know, just like in your work, people are coughing and, you know, burping and all of these kinds of things. If someone were to just look at that and not really know what's going on, oh, they, yeah, oh they're sick. You're making them sick. Yeah, they think I'm doing something horrible. Right. Yeah. And it's really a release. Yes. So there's a mental equivalent of that with meditation where you may be sitting there thinking about that crazy ass person that stalked you five years ago every meditation for a week. And you're like, I'm not supposed to be thinking this. Where's the white light? Where's the unicorn? You know, but that white <laughs> light is in there after we get the stalker stuff out. The unicorn's waiting. The unicorn's that. right behind it's the stalker. behind the stalker. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we need to, and, and in order to get the stalker out, we get to celebrate. This is something that's happening for me, not to me, but for me. Right. And so, okay, so we're talking about meditation. We're talking about all of these things. And, you know, one of the things that comes up for me a lot that I find is that when do we, when is the best time for people to meditate? Because like, you know, if you're dealing with someone who's got a high power job or their CEO or their mom and they got to get the kids to school or you're their dad and they have to, you know, they have to go out into their office or their job, or perhaps they're just a person who gets up in the morning. Like when is the best time? Is it before, is it in the morning before they can have this amazing blissful day or is it in the evening? Like when do we meditate? I love how you're keeping it very practical. That's fantastic. Thank you. I think more people, we need this. And again, this is why I wrote the book is so that we can make meditation more. Practical. I'm very mainstream. Most of the people who listen to the show, they're very much, you know, like, okay, we don't want the fluffy bunny stuff. We right. want like what's real and Call how does it action. apply to our life right now? Right. So the answer to the question depends on your approach to meditation. There are meditations that are intended to help you sleep at night. Those are not the meditations you want to do when you wake up in the morning. And there are meditations that are help, that are meant to energize you. Those are not the meditations you want to do before you go to bed at night. So we have to, we have to understand not all meditation is the same. Think about meditation like uh, pills in the pharmacy. There are meditations for, you know, there are pills for arthritis. There are pills for migraine headaches, you know, all kinds of things. And the meditation that I have been practicing and teaching is, is a meditation that is meant to energize. And so I do it first thing in the morning. And 
By that, I mean when I get up before I start engaging in a lot of activity, particularly activity that causes me to leave the house. So I'm not saying, you know, you have to get up and that's the first thing you need to do. But before you start eating food, before you start uh, drinking coffee, before you start getting all into your communications, it's a great way to start the day because you benefit from having a freshly meditated mind, gives you more perceptual acuity. You can see connections. You can communicate a lot more effectively, whether it's on email, whether it's to your children, your spouse. Because at the end of the day, nobody really cares about how good you are at meditation, but everybody cares about how good you are at life. You know, if you're, if meditation makes you into a more compassionate person or a better mother or better listener, then you end up having better experiences, generally speaking. And the things you can't control, the people you can't, you have no control over, you're able to take that on and then release it in the moment instead of holding on to it and harboring it for hours and days and weeks and for in some cases years. So, um, so I would say morning time is the best. And then, uh, you don't need to do it more than 20 minutes, just in a normal situation. Obviously, you know, if you're, if you're very practiced and, and you have been studying with a teacher or some system, then you need to, you should follow those instructions. Um, and, but if you're brand new, never really been consistent with meditation, you're, you're basically eliciting the relaxation response when you sit down comfortably and close your eyes. And that response can only last about 20 minutes, 30 at the most. And if you over meditate, it's kind of like over medicating. You can start getting diminishing returns. Okay. Wait, 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 hold on a second. Cause this is so good. There's, there's a such thing as over meditating. There's such thing as over meditating. Yeah. How come no one talks about that? Because <laughs> everyone feels like this is like some kind of like relay. Like I hear a lot of people like, well, I meditate for an hour. Well, yeah. I meditate for three hours. Yeah. So there's over meditation. Tell us about that. So when you meditate again, okay, so let's take the relaxation response, for example. So the relaxation response was a, a term that was coined back in the 1960s by this Harvard's cardiologist known as uh, Dr. Herbert Benson. And he was one of the He's probably known as the godfather of meditation research. And he did his first studies on these people who were practicing transcendental meditation in Cambridge. And with TM, for those of you who don't really know what that means, transcendental meditation is a style of meditation that is basically uh, designed for householders as opposed to monastic people. So you sit comfortably, you don't have to cross your legs, you do close your eyes, and you, you adopt a passive attitude while using a, 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 uh, a point of focus, as he calls it, where it could be a mantra, could be a visualization of something, could be some, something that brings you happiness, basically. It could be a prayer. And what, he's, what, he, what he saw was that your body could achieve profound states of rest as a result of that approach to meditation. And those that rest minute for minute was deeper than any rest that was recorded when someone is sleeping at night. So, you know, you sit down and meditate for 20 minutes, you're getting two to five times deeper. Your physiology is getting two to five times more rest than the equivalent amount of time in the deepest point of your night's sleep, which is between two o'clock and uh, four o'clock. So what causes this body, the body to shift into this deep state of rest? Biochemistry. 
right? Every thought we have has a corresponding chemical component that gets released in the body that causes the body to respond accordingly. And if the thought is telling you that you're under attack, your body produces stress chemistry. If your thought is is telling you that everything is okay, your body produces rest chemistry, and that's what causes the relaxation response to occur. But what he found was that the body can only sustain those relax that relaxation response for about 20 to 30 minutes. And if someone over meditates and you continue getting that same chemical production, it can cause you to feel like you're hallucinating and have other kinds of, of um, mental imbalance imbalances. So this, this is not anything that's necessarily new. Any, any, it's just like drinking water. You can drink too much water, which makes you drown. You can breathe too much air, which makes you choke. You can, um, you know, eat too much food, you know? So these things that are good for us, water, air, and food, if you do too much of it, then it's, it's not good for you. And meditation is kind of in the same category. So, um, yeah, so I'll share something with you. Cause I think that's, um, that what you just shared with me is, um, an eye opener for a lot of people who are listening, including myself. You know, because I do meditate an hour sometimes. And but there's different techniques, like the Vipassana approach, hour, right? But it, there's a different thing happening inside. So it just depends on the, st- the style of meditation you're doing. And there's so many different styles. There's out so there. many different styles. Yeah, hundreds of different styles. What is the style that you teach? I teach the householder style. So I, I initially learned transcendental meditation. So all of my teachings come from that that. That base, and the reason why I use that style was because I found it, with all of my different experiences, to be the easiest style to get started with. And then eventually, some people may graduate from that style and go into a different style, which causes you to meditate in a different way. So I get a lot of flack from people, you know, saying that I'm suggesting that this is the right way to meditate or the only way to meditate. But all I'm saying is, if you have a practice that you don't look forward to doing, then it's probably too hard because you don't have to force yourself to eat dessert. If you have a sweet tooth, you don't have to force yourself to watch, to binge watch, you know, your Netflix show because you look forward to it. And you should at some level feel the same way about meditating. At least that's been my experience. I was a very sporadic meditator when I didn't like meditating, but I knew it was good for me. But when I found a practice that I enjoy, I look for, I wake up in the morning now and I can't wait to meditate. It's the first thing I do. I mean, I see it. I see it all over your Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like everything. And actually it inspires me too, because when I'm traveling the world and I'll, because I always check up on you and see what you're doing. And then there's like a picture of you and getting and doing your meditation. And I'm like, you know what? I need to meditate today. <laughs> so it's really wonderful. And sometimes you'll draw like pictures on it with yeah. like a crown and yeah. different things. And like, I'm like, God, I love light so much. I need to go meditate right now. Let me just go stop what I'm doing and go meditate. So it's very inspirational. You're, you're like Salvador Dali, though, you know? I don't do drugs. I am drugs. Yeah, You don't yeah. have to meditate, Salvador. You are meditation. <laughs> people see you and they just drop right in. Oh, that is funny. I love that. But, you know, it's true because I always tell people I don't need to do drugs. And because I am ayahuasca, I am ecstasy, right. I am these things. <laughs> That's my energy. You know, in shamanism, we have um, different types of techniques that we do to train people's minds so they can access their power. So one of them is being able to put them in a situation where they either just stare at a fire 
and they they keep their mind on the fire. And then when their mind gets away from the fire, they have to get up and scream. Mm. And then they go back to the fire. They stare at the fire again. It can even be a candle for people in the modern world. Yeah. And I do this a lot with my students. So they look at it. And every time they, their mind just moves just a little bit to thinking about something other than just focusing on that fire, they have to stand up and they have to scream, shake out their body, and then go back into it. And so what ends up happening is they, they begin to, to, over time, to go much higher and higher. And some people start off, they're like, they can only do five minutes. And then when they get up to an, an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, it shows how long they can stay focused on one thing. So when they do healing energy or when they're working on someone's body, they're able to achieve a, a clear focus channel of energy through their being without being thinking, am I doing, am I, am I strong enough? Am mm. I able to heal this person? And like all these little thoughts that would come in or distractions of sounds or different things of that nature. And then after we do that, we take them into a very aggressive type situation. So it can be a very loud place, a place that's very busy with people. And we have them practice in that same space, being in that same space with chaos all around them. And the way we do that, the reason why we do that because in shamanism, what we do is we think about it from the understanding of the, in shamanism, we study physiology, physiology, and pathology. And one of the understandings of like physical pathology is the understanding of how the body um, heals itself from disease. How does the immune system build itself? So the idea is that if we go into a, a situation where we're going into an aggressive situation and we're going into a place where we're learning how to focus and the aggression isn't affecting us, then we're building an immunity to sound. We're building immunity to chaos. We're building an immunity to any kind of outside distractions. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that as far as people going into that state with, um, with the meditation practice? Oh my God, I love it. That is exactly the, the type of approach that I take with meditation. I call it guerrilla meditating. And I, have, I tell my students for this week, I want you to guerrilla meditate, go outside of your normal routine, go out in public, you know, go to the places where you would be the most uncomfortable sitting in meditation. And I want you to meditate there because what you're practicing is not trying to quiet your mind. What you're practicing is including all of these other things in the experience. And it's in the, it's in the inclusivity approach that you're going to find the mind just settles into that quiet place. It's, it's the resisting those things that causes your mind to stay most active and distracted. So it's a practice. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, but a lot of times people just need permission. It's, it's amazing how much people just need permission to have these experiences. Like, it's okay for you to think about whatever you're thinking about. It's fine. It's, you're not doing anything wrong. And when they hear that, it just changes so much for them. And as a result of them now being more relaxed, that was all it needed. You're, you just needed to be relaxed about the whole thing. And now your mind can just find that state on its own. Because guess what? It's looking for it. Your mind wants to be one. Your mind wants to be settled. Your mind wants to feel happy and blissful and to see these connections. But when we resist it, I, I, I use the analogy of a pinball machine, right? There's all this chaos. You shoot the ball up and, and every time we resist the mind, it's like we knock that ball right back up into all the noise and the chaos. And if you just allow the mind to 
just do whatever it's doing in the meditation, you'll find that the ball will just kind of roll down and get deeper and deeper. And eventually it'll drop into that abyss on its own. And you don't really have to control it all that much. It's in the lack of control that you'll find the most enjoyable experiences with the meditation. That is what I think from a shamanic point of view is what the world needs in order to reclaim emotional intelligence. Yeah. Well, just, we're, we're a world of people who are trying to control everything. To, and it's an exercise in futility for the most part. Speak on that. Well, it's just, you know, there's not, we live in an ever-changing world. And, and when we want to resist the change, we start buying into the illusion of control, which is what the advertisers are all trying to sell. You can control your beauty by putting on this makeup. You can control your safety by buying this security system you, or buying this gun or, you know, being a believer in gun rights. You can control, you know, whatever, your attractiveness by signing on to this app. It's all external. Right? Yeah, of course it is. And it's what definitely. that means is the moment we get uncomfortable, we lose control. There was a, a thing I experienced in my life probably 20 years ago, living in New York. I was going through this whole experiment with giving things up. And I gave up meat. I gave up sugar. I gave up alcohol. I just was like, the, I, was, I was obsessed with seeing, with almost create, it's like a minimalism approach to health and wellness. What can I go without? And um, started fasting once a week. And then everything was, I was like, I'd given it all up, right? Really clean lifestyle, really clean living. And except I was addicted to chapstick. And, <laughs> and I didn't realize it until I'd given everything else up, how addicted I was to chapstick. So I literally, Shaman Dirk, I would carry five little tubes of chapstick on me, one in each pocket, one in my backpack, one in my house, one in, you know, I had one everywhere I was. Because if I was ever in a situation and I, for whatever reason, didn't have my chapstick, I was completely out of the moment. I was, I was anxious. I was unfocused. I couldn't do anything. I'm addicted to chapstick, but right. not chapstick, but like healthy chapstick. Right. But, but he, I have yeah, one everywhere. Just lip balm or whatever. Oh, I have it everywhere. And, um, and the, if I didn't have it on for five minutes, my lips would start feeling dry and cracking and da, 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 da. So I realized this stuff, I'm a slave to this stuff and I don't want to be like that anymore. So I decided that I was going to try to liberate myself from slavery. <laughs> I was going to escape from the Underground Railroad of, of Chapstick. Of, of chapstick. <laughs> and, and man, uh, you know, my lips were drier than sandpaper for about three weeks. But eventually I woke up one morning about a month after that and I real, and, and my lips were just naturally moist. Now, I haven't used Chapstick at, 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 since then. And Really? Really, yeah. Because I'm addicted to, yeah. uh, I have like, you go in my house, I have one in every area, like wherever yeah. I'm at, I have it in my bag, when I'm traveling, yeah. I have it in my pocket. I said, it can't have this control over me. So, but in any case, that's what I think a lot of people experience, not just with chapstick, but with everything. Like this, I need this job because if I don't have it, then I'm not going to be able to, we tell ourselves all these stories, these fear-based stories about what's going to happen if we don't have this, if we don't have that. And, and I think that's what the meditation does. It's like a root canal for 
the notion that your happiness is coming from your external circumstance. And once you root all that out, then you start to see, actually, I am happiness. The happiness is where I am. And, and you can be uncomfortable. Your body can be uncomfortable, but your state is untouched. And that's really, that's real power. You know, mm. people want to be powerful. That's power. Genius words. Genius words. I just want to take a deep inhalation, everyone, after that was just said. So let's just all breathe. Inhale. And exhale with an uh. Because that's it right there. That's that's the big challenge for human beings is to to stop diverting their energy outside of them to all of these things that are being sold to them. And I always say to people all the time, I say, you know, the wars that we're experiencing in the world is not the real war. The real war is the one that we're experiencing with ourselves from that which is being told to us that if we do this, if we have this, if we create this, you know, this is going to give us this and so forth. And people are literally, like you said, addicted to it and no one has been talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you just talked about it, for one, I'm lit because of it and I feel so good. And that's why we had to take that breath. Because everyone really needs to sink into that knowledge right there. That is like direct wisdom coming from light. That is genius consciousness in action. Because if we continue to operate, and I even me and my my lip balm, you know, now I'm looking at my lip balm and I'm like, okay, well, my lip balm, I gotta, you know, I gotta look at I get out of that, you know, that that slavery. Because I am um, addicted to my lip balm. I'm always like, oh, I don't want my dry lips. I'm going into an event. I don't want my dry lips. Oh, I'm about to go on TV. I don't want my dry lips. Oh, I'm going to go speak to a bunch of people. I don't want my dry lips. And literally that, you know, there's so many things that, you know, for instance, you know, the way I eat and the way I live my life as a purist. And, you know, those things don't even affect me, you know, and I have very, everyone knows me as a very disciplined person and how I operate in my life. But that lip balm, you know, yeah, it's definitely got, it's got me. Your number. It's got my number. <laughs> <laughs> You're his bitch. Yeah, I am. I am definitely the bitch of the lip balm. <laughs> that lip balm is like waiting for me. It's like, you Ike know. Turner. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know what's up. Just eat your cake, <laughs> Shop Dirt. Just get in there right now, Shop Dirt, and get this lip balm on right now. <laughs> but it's true. And I see so many people suffer in life because they. They do exactly what Light says. They 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 put their energy out there to all the companies and all the people who are selling you this bullshit, these fake ideas of what will make you happy, what will bring you bliss, what will give you the, you know, make you attractive, what will, you know, bring all of these ideas to you. And in fact, the only thing that could ever make you happy is you. And, and that is so powerful. So I really had to like just go on a tangent for that for a second, because I mean, that is just, that is just, you know, as I always say to my, I say to, um, to all my followers and, and, and tribal members that th- that is spiritually giant. That is a spiritual giant right there. And when we say spiritual giant, we're, we always talk about spiritual giant as being information data that comes in that is like really about like, you really need to listen to this because this is taking you up higher. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is that there's always going to be a middle passage. There's going to be the underground railroad of the thing that you're trying to liberate yourself from. You know, if you're attached to your job and you don't like your job, if you're crying going to work and coming home from work and you quit your job, it doesn't mean the moment you quit, you're going to feel like this big burst of bliss. You, you may go through six months of uncertainty and not knowing and questioning, did I do the right? But then 
once you come out of the woods and you're in, you know, you're in, you're in that free, you're in that liberated, emancipated state, that's where you're going to start to, to get the full benefits of the action that you took. And it's from being in the uncertainty that calluses you for other areas of your life that you want to liberate yourself from. Right. So, um, so we shouldn't be afraid or think, you know, you hear it all the time. If it's not happening, if it's not, I'm not in the flow state and it's not meant to be, but you have never cultivated the flow state in your entire life. So why would it happen just spontaneously right now? Because you made some one choice. Like it requires a series of choices and action steps in order to really embody that state. And then eventually maybe, like I was telling you, I just gave up my whole, all my possessions, everything that I own in life is in this carry-on bag that's about three feet from where we're having this conversation. And people may look at that and go, wow, light, you know, that must have been very challenging for you to do. And the truth of the matter is it was challenging and it was 20 years in the making. You know, like This is not the first time I've done this. I've given up other things that I've appreciated much more than my stuff, my furniture. So while it was challenging, it was also an accumulation effect. And we all are moving in that direction towards becoming our truest selves, our best selves. And it takes those little actions. You know, you've heard the phrase death by a thousand cuts. There's health by a thousand choices. Like every little choice we make, am I going to refrain from whatever lip balm or whatever your, your version of lip balm is? Yeah, for sure. You know, codependency in this relationship or whatever it is. And you do that a thousand times, and then the thousand and one and first time, that's where you start to feel like, oh, I have my flow. I mean, you've been flowing the entire time, but it just doesn't feel like it's flow because you're addicted to the old ways. And that deconstruction of that addictive behavior doesn't feel all that inspiring sometimes. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I gave, I remember it was maybe, was it four years ago, I was in um, Sweden. And I had this house in Hollywood Hills with the cars and the artwork that I bought at Art Basel. And like, you know, my house was packed and, you know, with furniture and everything. And I was sitting in Sweden and I decided to fast for two days. And I was sitting in my living room in Stockholm and I started meditating. And in my meditation, there was me as a little boy. And I want to go grow to, to, to embrace the little boy. And he started running. And I couldn't catch him because there was all these furniture and cars and like all of these things in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, these look like my things in my house, <laughs> you know? And then like, literally um, I heard this voice say, what are you going to do to get to that little boy? And I was like, it like it'd make all of these things go away. And immediately when they all went away, the little boy was laughing mm. and I went to hug him. And then the, the, the warehouse where I was chasing him in disappeared. It was a big sun. And I came out of meditation. I grabbed the phone, called my assistant, Sam. I'm like, Sam, we're getting rid of the house. We're getting rid of cars. Give the car to my sister. She needs a new car. Give it to her so she can have an extra car for the kids. Artwork. I know who wants the artwork. Um, I want you to put all my clothes laid out. I'll tell you whatever fits in a suitcase. Send it to me. Everything else, give it away. And the rest of it, give it to the Goodwill. I'm done. I don't need these things. They're collecting dust. I'm paying for a pool person. I'm paying for a person to clean that big house. I have friends who are coming and using my house. And it was just like, 
my house became the clubhouse for all my friends for their overflow when they had family coming from the holidays. They're like, oh, well, you don't, you're never home. You're always on the road. So can we go swim in your pool? Can my kids have a pool party? Can we go do all these things? I was like, I don't need this. I don't need these things. And so I, I, you know, I brought myself down to, you know, to two suitcases and that's how I've been traveling the world ever since. And I only buy something when I give something up. Uh, Right. Exactly. And people may hear that and think, well, you know, Shaman Durek, he's, uh, he's crazy or, you know, he's whatever, or these guys are crazy. You know, I can never do that. But there's a trust that you have with your guidance, your inner guidance, that that's what, that's the catalyst, right? If the, if the inner guidance told you to grow your hair out or, you know, whatever, you, you do it. You right. Because that's, it's served you for so long, right? And it's never let you down. So why start questioning it now? And, and I think it's not really about what the person does. It's about developing a relationship with the inner guidance. So, you know, it, for someone else, their journey may not be become minimalist or start traveling around their inner guidance may tell them something completely different and you have to trust it. You start trusting it, you know, with the small things, take this route to work, go into Starbucks and and buy the person behind you a coffee or, you know, these little things. And then when the big things happen, you don't have to question it at all. You can just go with it. I love that. I love that. So how can people like get on your your lit train of bliss. <laughs> um, I, I have a few things. Uh, obviously, the book Bliss More. You can find that on Amazon. But Light Watkins on social media, L I G H T uh, Watkins, and then also LightWatkins.com. I also send out a daily dose of inspiration, which is an email that I write every day. People always ask me, "Do you just write ten of them in a row and then just..." No, I write them. I sit down every day. I think about what I want to write. And it's just little snackable doses of inspiration, stories, anecdotes, musings, things that I observe in in my day-to-day life that I find to be personally inspiring. And I share that with my uh, subscribers. So you can go to lightwatkins.com, sign up for that. And then there are links to everything else from those daily doses if that's something that if you want more, but otherwise you can just get the little dose. And it's a great way to start the day uh, especially if you have your daily med- meditation practice, it's always nice to kind of go into a meditation with a little positive positivity, a little inspir- inspirational thought. And do you um, offer any meditation challenges and things? There's a nature? there's a free 21 day meditation challenge that is a companion to the book Bliss More. So, and then the, my other book, well, my first book, uh, The Inner Gym, a 30 day workout for strengthening happiness. Uh, that also is the book itself is a 30 day challenge. So it gives you something to do every day because it's good to have a daily actionable step that you can do to help you embody those principles. And they can get that on Amazon as well. Absolutely. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on our show. And you you know, everyone, uh, it's time for some more bliss. And remember, I always tell everybody is that when something really good happens to you, you always say, I want more. So this is a wonderful opportunity for you to have more bliss in your life. Go and get White Watkins, um, Light Watkins' book, My Tongue Tied, and um, and get blissed out and really get into that practice of, of self-love and really, you know, connecting and go and sign up on his newsletter, get those daily messages, follow him on Instagram. He's an amazing, amazing brother, an amazing friend of mine for many, many, many years. And, you know, I would never bring anyone on Ancient Wisdom Today 
podcast if they were not legit. So I am so happy and thank you for being on our show. Thanks for having me, man. This was fun. Absolutely. All right, everyone. That was an amazing, amazing show to have Light Watkins on our show and really to give us the perspective and understanding that we don't need to be anyone's bitch. So this is really, really important because who wants to be anyone's bitch? I don't want to be anyone's bitch and I know you don't want to be anyone's bitch. So let's get out of that space of slavery and let's get into really recognizing what's important for our life. And that is about having more joy, more harmony, more love, more freedom, more happiness, and more bliss. Until next show, you can check me out at Shaman Durek on Instagram if you haven't followed me already. And there's going to be some amazing shows coming up to just lift you and shift you and ignite you and invite you to the wonderful, wonderful experience of unconditional love and self-love. So enjoy your now. Until next time, I love you. Bye.